connection, right? Well, today we're really talking about a deep connection with God. A deep connection with God, a deep connection with others. If you look at the screen on, your, on my back right here, we have a tree. Now, this tree is every one of you, deeply rooted and planted. This is my goal for this next year. This is my hope for each and every one of you, that you are deeply connected. Your roots are deep into the soil of faith. Today, we're in Hebrews chapter 10, and we're talking about faith. We're talking about faith. We're talking about Christ. We're talking about his great love for us. And what an amazing job you guys are doing here by being here because you're starting off the new year right. You're starting off the new year right by being here with the focus being on God. What better way to start off 2023 than to start off with God in mind, with God as your, your not only the hope, but also the entire part of your being, the entire part of your life. And I'm just saying, I'm encouraged by, I'm very encouraged by seeing you all here today. So thank you for being here. Uh, super excited to get into today's message. Uh, today's message is going to be Hebrews 10, 19 through 39. But before we get there, I want to ask you something. Have you ever wanted to be close to someone? Have you ever wanted to get to know them and have a deep, meaningful relationship with them? For many of us, it may be our parents we've wanted to have a relationship with. One example I often see in movies or real life is uh, children's anticip children anticipating their father's arrival home from work, right? We've seen that so many times in movies, and we've even seen it in real life. Uh, they're so excited to see their dad get home. One example that I'm thinking about is in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. In the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey, he's the main character, and he has a wife, and he has three kids. He took over his father's company with his uncle as the treasurer of the company. His uncle actually misplaces all of the company's money when taking it to the bank to get deposited, which leaves George both angry and frustrated. He goes home and he sees his kids that are so joyful and happy that he is finally home and that his wife has decorated the house for Christmas, kind of like this, right? A winter wonderland. He even hears uh, his little daughter practicing a song for a Christmas party. But George, he's so focused on what's going on around him and, and the worries and the stress that he actually becomes overwhelmed to the point that he blows up. He starts yelling at them, making them cry, and he eventually leaves them. Maybe this has been our experience with some of our relationships with family members and friends. We may be trying really hard to have a good relationship with them, but for some reason, no matter what we try to do to fix it, it seems like there's always that broken connection, that broken connection. Thankfully, today's passage in Hebrews shows us that God loves us so much that he desires a personal relationship with us, 
and has made a way through his son's sacrifice so we can know him as our own father without the broken connection. God desires both a deep and meaningful connection with us as his children, and he's had a plan from the beginning to both to restore, to revive, and to replenish a relationship with him. So much that even through Christ, neither stress or sin is able to stop us from the love of God through faith in his son. Before we dive into Hebrews, let's pray though. For God to bless our time together and so that we can learn from his word and have a deeper connection and relationship with him. Let's pray. Dear God, I pray for our time together, Lord. I pray that it's a time that we can really uh, just grow our, our roots deep in our faith, God, that we can really grow closer to you and that we can grow closer with those around us, God, uh, those that you've placed in our life, Lord. I pray that it can all be rooted in love, God, and that you remind us of who we are, not just who we are, but whose we are, that we're yours. We thank you so much for this time. May we put you first. It's in your name, Father God. Amen. Awesome. So, we're in the book of Hebrews, right? How many of you guys remember when I preached last time from the book of Hebrews? No one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Liam? Okay, cool. Ash? Um, you, if you remember Hebrews, who's the author? Do you remember my trick question last time? Okay. What was it? Who is the author? God. We, we, we don't know. We know it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but we don't know exactly who it was. It could have been Paul. It could have been Barnabas. Or it could have been Luke. Um, there are some that believe it was Paul. Um, I personally believe it was Luke or Barnabas. There's some uh, deep study that I did, but I'm not going to push who it is. We just know that it's written. We know it's inspired by God. We know that all scripture is profitable for teaching and correction and rebuke. And we also know that it was considered as scripture part of the canonization process uh, during the Council of Trent. So we can trust that it is scripture. And so therefore, I'm preaching from it today. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. Um, the historical context. What exactly is going on during this time that Hebrews was written? Um, it was written right after uh, Christ, after he was crucified, after he walked the earth, right? Uh, but it was written before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. This book mentions uh, Timothy, uh, who we know elsewhere in Scripture was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. Um, and it points to the fact that Hebrews was written sometime before the Romans destroyed the Jerusalem temple in AD 70. And then the overall theme of Hebrews, if you guys remember, it is Christocentric. That's a big word, uh, meaning it's Christ-centered, uh, Christocentric. Uh, it's basically helping us remember the connection between both the Old and New Testaments, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, uh, the covenant of Christ. And so um, in a similar way that Christ connects us to the God the Father. So, and you'll learn more about that today, which I'm excited about. And then before uh, this passage, so we're doing Hebrews 10, 19 through 39, but before this passage, Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, it reminds us that Christ's sacrifice is a sacrifice that take, took place once. 
And that unlike in the old covenant, there was a sacrifice system that was continual. Um, once a person sinned, they had to go make a sacrifice, right? But we learned that through Christ, that um, through the new covenant, Christ has obliterated sin and death through his sacrifice for those who have faith in him. This chapter also reminds us that through the new covenant, instead of us writing the law on our hands and having it on our heads, God has placed the law in our hearts through placing the Holy Spirit inside of believers. And then what happens after this chapter? Just so you get a, a context of what's going on. How many of you guys remember what Hebrews 11 is about? You said it last time. Yep, there we go. Hall of Faith uh, speaks on examples of people of faith. It really helps us and leads us to what we went through last time, which was Hebrews 12, who is the ultimate and greatest example of faith, who is Jesus. There we go. Okay, awesome. Well, now we're going to start Hebrews 10, 19 through 21, but my first point for today is this. By Christ becoming both our atonement and high priest, he has made it possible to have a personal and real relationship with God, God the Father. And we're going to start in verse 19. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the Holy Spirit's, or sorry, holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. So I'll, I'll stop there. Okay. So verses 19 through 21, we see that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, okay? Throughout the Old Testament, God is seen as holy. He is seen as both untouchable and invisible. In Exodus, he is seen as a pillar of fire that moves with the people, and he's also seen as a thunderous, uh, as a thunderous voice that gives the law. In the Old Testament, we also see that priests would be able to enter the Holy of Holies to make sacrifices on behalf of the people in the Holy of Holies in the temple, which is God's, where God's holiness was found. And it also, we'll, we'll see, um, there were cherubim guarding it, golden cherubim inside of Solomon's temple, and there was also, in the Holy of Holies, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. So I just want to give you some background on that. And then here's from the Lexham uh, Bible Dictionary. Here's what a high priest is. And it says this, high priest in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the primary purpose of the high priest was to serve as a representative and mediator between the people and Yahweh. The office was established with Aaron, the brother of Moses, and high priests were the head priest, first at the tabernacle and then later at the temple or Solomon's temple. Zadok served as high priest in the temple during the reign of Solomon. The high priest served several purposes that were crucial to Israelite worship. It was the high priest's responsibility to see that the covenant was enforced and to direct people uh, to complete the duties of the temple and the law of Moses. As the representative for the nation of Israel, the high priest had a tremendous responsibility to direct the hearts of people toward God and to fulfill the covenant. 
Some of the primary responsibilities of the high priest were regularly handling sacrifices, offerings, uh, dealing with the people's sins, right? The, the blessing of the people and the annual entrance into the most holy place, which I mentioned earlier, which is holy of holies. There we go. Uh, during the Day of Atonement. Many of the duties, actions, and even the unique style of dress that was required of the high priest were symbolic. And we're almost done here with this definition. This is just a really good definition. I want to make sure you guys really know what a high priest is because that's so important to this passage. The office and responsibilities of high priests were often familial or family-oriented. Leviticus 16.32 and Exodus 29.29. Generally, the office of high priest was assumed by the son of a current high priest when he's either no longer able to fulfill his duties or upon him dying. The primary way in which a high priest was evaluated in Scripture was in terms of their love and loyalty to Yahweh and the zeal with which they held uh, to the observation of the covenant. Throughout the Old Testament, there is this foreshadowing and forwarding a forward-reaching hope of a more and perfect high priesthood that can represent Yahweh effectively and be a sufficient mediator for the people of Israel. This pattern of the lives of good and poor high priests uh, make it clear that no human being can perform, uh, fully form this responsibility. Why? Because we're sinful people. We're not perfect. And what, what was that forward-reaching what were we looking to for the future? What was our hope? Jesus. Jesus. Hebrews 9, 7 says it like this. But into this second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year during the Day of Atonement, and not without taking the blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. It is only through Christ we are able to now see God as flesh and interact with him. Jesus acts on our behalf as both a faithful and perfect high priest. Hebrews 9.11 puts it like this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. And so through Jesus, we have redemption, right? We have redemption, which is salvation, and a new opportunity to have a tangible and real personal relationship with God. Isn't that amazing? We don't have to go to a priest. We don't have to go through all these different things, right, to get to God. Jesus made a way that we could pray to him, that we can read his word, that we can ask him questions. We can ask him. We can spend time having a personal relationship and getting to know him. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. That is the most incredible thing. That is the greatest news ever because we don't deserve to have that personal relationship with him, but he desires it so much for us. An example for um, other religions or, or other um, I guess other types of religions or different places you could go, you often have to go to a high priest, or not a high priest, but a priest to confess your sins. However, but because of what Christ has done, we don't need a priest to forgive our sins because only God forgives our sins. Jesus is God, and he chose to forgive us through 
the atonement on a cross. The atonement on the cross, he made a way, he made a sacrifice for us. So my application for that part of the passage is this. He is now the high priest, so we are able to draw near to him. Instead of distancing ourselves and disregarding him, we should desire to know him closely and make him known throughout our life. So point number two is this. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. And the next passage is this. Hebrews 10, 22 through 25. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So verse 22 says this. We're drawing near, right? We're going to draw near to God. We should be drawing near to God. We're getting close to God. And we should have complete confidence in him and not be fearful or feel like we're walking on eggshells. But knowing and not, not wondering, oh man, am I okay with God? Am I okay with God? Do I know if I'm okay with God? Because our status of being okay with God is not about how we perform. It's not based on my performance. It's not based on your guys' performance, but instead it's based on his atonement. I'm going to say that again. It is not based on our performance, but it is based on his atonement. It is based on what Jesus did, not on what we did. Because there is nothing that we could possibly do that could save us on our own or out of ourselves or out of our own energy or our own effort or out of whatever we want to do. Only by the blood of Jesus can we receive that atonement because he was the perfect lamb that sacrificed himself for us, for our sins, because he loved you. Now, isn't that a a message of good news and hope for this new year? Don't we need to hear that? Because we spend so much time effortlessly or just putting it, sorry, not effortlessly, but always putting an effort to, to do good or to do great things or to be uh, like having some entrepreneurial mindset where we got to just work hard, as hard as we can. That's not the gospel. The gospel is faith. The gospel is love. The gospel is a gift. And it cost him so great something so great and of such great value. Isn't that amazing that he did that for you? And it says that there is a sprinkling, right? It talks about the sprinkling in verse uh, 22, right? With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. When we have faith in him, he washes us clean, as clean as snow, as pure as we could possibly be. In the Old Testament, sprinkling is often represented as holiness imparted on the people of God. Jesus, he imparted his holiness on us. Not because he had to, not because he felt guilty and like, oh man, I need to to do this out of obligation. No, because he loved you. And he still loves you. Verse 23, 
I'll, I'll explain, is we hold on to the gospel. We need to hold on to the gospel in our testimony. We hold on to what God has already done in our life and see it as evidence for our faith and that God is real. I was this person before Christ, but now I am this person. Before Christ, I was in depression, but now I am this person. I'm joyful. I was hopeless, but now I've received hope. I was without peace. I was anxious all the time. This is the message of the gospel. This is the message of our testimonies. And these testimonies we ought to hold on to. And where am I getting that? From verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let's hold on to that confession of what God has done in our lives and remember that we once were this, but now we are this because of Christ. And verse 24, uh, Don did help me out with this. I will say that. <laughs> he helped point something out that I think is really important. In verse 24, it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The word for stir, stirring up is this word, eis paroxmon, okay? And it's a striking word that means incitement. I get this out of uh, Hebrews by uh, the William Tyndale commentary, just so you guys know. And it seems to suggest that loving one another will not just happen. It needs to be worked at. And even this word could mean provoked. Provoked. In the same way as good works, basically we, we have to um, allow Christ and the, the Holy Spirit to work in us to um, basically provoke those other people to love, to be loving towards them. So, for example, let me just explain real quick. Do you think it's easier to provoke someone to anger? Or do you think it's easier to provoke someone to love? Anger, right? I don't know. I, I'm just saying, like, I'm being honest, like, completely honest, right? It's easier to provoke someone to anger. Our parents, right? Or our friends or our family members. I think it's, it's a lot harder to love people, right? I'll just put it like that. Is it harder to love people or is it harder to to be angry at people. I think it is harder to love people. It's definitely worth it, and it's definitely um, going to have a greater result, but it is harder to love people. And I think that's why uh, he uses such a, a powerful word, provoke, because it's, it's something that we, uh, is essential to our faith, is love. And so... Remember this, though. The love is not an effort on our own works, but it's a work of the Holy Spirit in us, transforming us. And one thing we can do is ask God, Lord, help me to love these people around me. Help me to love this person better. They're, they're really, in some sense, maybe might be hard to love or annoying or difficult, right? Those are some adjectives we might say. But, Lord, please help me to love them. Help me to care for them. Help me to make sure that they know they're loved, cherished, and valued. Because that matters. And then instead of us looking at how well we're doing on our, our, on our own, we can ask ourselves from time, that time to time, but focusing on others can really help us to walk 
to walk with God in a different way um, because we're not becoming self-absorbed or narcissistic. Instead, we're serving others. And serving others is one way that we can show the love of God. Uh, considering others and really thinking about them is how we can care for them and show them that it is vital. Um, it's a vital part of being a Christian. It's a vital part of our faith. It's a vital part if we want to grow in our faith is loving on people. And love, it's at the heart of the gospel. Without love, there would be no good news to share, right? I mean, the whole point is that God loves us. He first loved us, right? That's why he sacrificed himself. It was our atonement. And then here's a big one, guys. So lean in. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as the day drawing, draws near. So not neglecting to meet together or fellowship together. When do we do this? When does this often happen? Right here, right now? Yes. On Sunday mornings. It happens during our Christmas luncheons. It happens during whenever we're spending time together and loving on each other and spending time learning together, uh, growing together. Um, if you're involved in a small group or a young adults group, uh, they're designed so you can fellowship and have a community together where you can grow in your faith. The church wouldn't be a church without God, love, and community. I'll say that again. The church would not be a church without God, love, and community. Neglecting to meet would mean showing up rather inconsistently. I'm going to say this, and this might be controversial, but it's okay. Your attendance does matter. It matters to God. I'm not saying you're saved by attendance. I'm not saying that. But I am saying your attendance does matter. You being here matters to us as the body. Because why? Seeing you guys here encourages me. And it encourages others. And it helps us. So we grow in our faith. You being here matters not only to us, the body, but it also matters to God. Because God loves to see people grow in love for him and love for others. And the one, way that, one of the ways that he does that is through the church, through our local body. And so I just want to say I'm encouraged that you're here. It's New Year's Day. What a great way to celebrate New Year's by focusing on God. Because there's so many other distractions out there, right? There's so many other things that we could focus on. But you guys are here focusing on the word, focusing on God, how you can grow, how you can love others. And here's an example of what inconsistency could look like um, just in a relationship. So for example, uh, an example would be a husband ends up by getting married, has kids. As the years go by, the husband is always gone and hasn't even showed up uh, to see uh, his house or his kids or his wife for several years, not because he's worked too hard or too much, and not because he's had too much on his plate, but because he chose not to. He'd rather be on his own. The same is true of us as Christians. We have entered into a covenant relationship with God through placing our faith in Jesus. His blood was spilled for us, making us 
making this covenant a serious blood covenant. But now all of a sudden we've accepted him, yet want really nothing to do with him or his people? We have to check ourselves. Do we truly love God and his people, or is God just a get-out-of-jail or get-out-of-hell free card? And that's a question we have to ask ourselves. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just saying, like, it really does matter that we are trying to grow. We're, we're asking God to grow our, our hearts, our walks, and our love for him. So point number three is this. Follow and obey God. Follow and obey God. Verse 26 through 28 says this. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So I'll just say this right now. Um, this is a concept. Uh, there's a Romans 7 type sin, and that this sin is not just a struggle. Um, Romans 7 is, is more of a struggle. Um, there, there's basically a Romans 1 and a Romans 7 type sin. I'll say this. Romans 7, uh, Paul is basically talking about he's trying to not sin, but whatever he does, uh, or whatever he wishes, uh, he does not do. And whatever he does not want to do, he does. So he, he basically has this little struggle going on. But then there's a whole different type of sin, which is in Romans 1, 1 verse 18 through 24. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been so clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts and impurity to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So that's one type of sin, right? That's the sin where it's just continually uh, rejecting God. You've already known about God, right? You've already known uh, through this thing called general revelation. General revelation. General revelation is this. You know that there is a creator. You, you know in your heart and you know in your mind that there is a creator. You maybe are out in the wilderness and you see, let's say, you're at the Grand Canyon, and you know, okay, there is no possible way that this happened without some type of creator, right? That is what we call general revelation, where there's a continual rejection. Specialized revelation is that we know the Word, we know the Bible. Um, but the problem is, is they not only rejected God, they also allowed their whole life to become about sin and darkness and evil. So they did both. They continually rejected God and they continually sinned. 
and basically had no faith in God. So therefore, what happened? It led them to death. It led them to eternal suffering, right? But then there's the Christian dealing with sin. And Paul says it like this in Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Not that he's already perfect. That means the Christian. We have every days, we have different days that we might mess up, right, from time to time. God is sanctifying us. God is changing us and making us more like him, but that does not mean we're perfect on our own. We still need the Holy Spirit to guide us, and there might be times where we fall. It says in Proverbs that a righteous man may stumble six times, but he gets up the seventh. It's, are we repenting? Are we following God? And are we fleeing from sin? Are we, is our goal to flee from sin? Because that's the difference, is one person is fleeing from sin, and one person is running to sin. One person is fleeing from sin and wanting to follow God and obey God, and the other person wants nothing to do with God, rejects God, and is completely living for sin. So does that make sense, guys? Okay. I was going to get through uh, Romans 7, but it can be a very long passage, so... I'll skip to uh, point number four is this. Judgment is coming for those who reject God and are continually disobedient. Judgment is coming for those who reject God and are continually disobedient. And it says this in verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who is trampled underfoot, the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And I'll, I'll go to point five. Being a follower of God leads to a life of suffering and sacrifice for him, but it will be worth it. It says this in verse 32. But recall the former days when you, were when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those treated that way. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Early Christians suffered. The mark of a Christian is this. It's bearing similar marks of Christ. You will bear suffering, you will bear rejection, and you will bear persecution. That is one promise that we have, is that we will endure suffering. Early Christians would be burned alive. They'd be decapitated and placed in arenas as a game for gladiators and secularists to enjoy dominating and destroying believers. To the world, us as believers, we may look like fools, but to God, we're seen as children. 
as Christians, and we're seen as loved. And we're seen as Christians, which means, what's the word Christian mean? That's a, that's a tough one. Not a lot of people know what the word Christian means. We say that we're Christian, but what, do we really know what it means? It means little Christ. Little Christ. We're a little example of who Christ is. An example is one that follows in obedience and represents him well. And that's you guys. You that believe. You guys aren't perfect. But you're trying to follow him in obedience and you hopefully represent him well. Verse 34 means that this, that those Christians were willing to let their property uh, be stolen, right? Because of their faith in Christ. Because they believed and knew that there was more to this world than temporary houses. And Jesus, he even said that this, he even said this, sorry, in John, that he has gone to prepare a place for them in an eternal kingdom. He says this in John 14, 2 through 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that you where I am, you may be also. And so right now, this isn't, this isn't the end. Believers, when you pass away, this isn't the end. That's the hope we have, because you will suffer here on this earth. You might not have that mansion you've wanted, right? Or like you might not have that really nice car, or, or you might suffer a lot. You might have a lot of heartaches and a lot of hardships, but that's not the end. The end is Christ and being able to dwell with him in heaven. And that's why he's our high priest, because he wants that connection, but he's also our atonement because he wants us saved. He wants us cherished and loved. And to not suffer eternally. Instead of us suffering eternally, we're suffering temporarily. And our joy is with him in heaven. And we can also have joy here on this earth because we look to the hope in Christ. Kind of like uh, Hebrews 12 says, look to, look to Christ. Don't look at your circumstances. Don't look at what's going on around you or what the world may throw at you. Look at the circumstances of Christ, that Christ has connected with you, that he has wanted a relationship with you. It's kind of like choose which circumstances you want to look at. Do you want to look at the circumstances of the world or do you want to look at your circumstances of being connected with Christ? Because those are complete opposites. Those are complete opposites. Whatever you're looking at, that, that, where basically your eyes are, are what leads you to your path. What, whatever you're looking at, that's where you're going, right? I'm not going to like, I don't know, like, I, I can't like look over here and try to go backwards, like I'll probably hit something, right? I, I'm looking at where I want to go because I'm walking in that direction. And so whatever you're looking at, if you're looking at those circumstances of, man, the world, COVID, all these things, right? All these things that happened over the, the past couple years, the inflation or all these things, of course that's going to tear you down. Of course that's going to stress you out and destroy you, right? Right? Yeah, because that's all negative things, all things that are the world is being shaken, right? 
But God is not shaken. And that's one thing that we can lean on to and look to is God. So point number six is this. Place your confidence and your reliance on God through faith. I'll say that again. Place your confidence and reliance on God through faith. Hebrews 10.35 says it like this. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my, my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we... We as believers are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. So we're going back. Back to Hebrews 12. Back to Hebrews 12 a couple weeks ago. We talked about running a race. This race is not like a track and field race meaning it's not a short-distance race. The race of life and the race of faith is not short-distance. I personally ran both track and field, and also I ran Karos country in high school. Um, I was actually the captain of the team. I don't know why they made me captain, but somehow someone put, did that. <laughs> I think it was a mistake. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But anyways, the training and the goals are completely different. In track, what are you trying to do? You're trying to go as fast and as hard as possible because you want to win super fast, right? Because it's a short distance. Uh, some people, like I said earlier, call this the entrepreneurial mindset where you just got to work super hard and then you'll become super rich, right? And you'll have like this cool jet and then you'll have all these bitcoins and then, I don't know, I'm just... That, that's an example, right? <laughs> but then, this is different. This is the race of faith in life. The race of faith in life is about endurance. It takes perseverance and patience. It takes the ability to train for a long distance. But this training is also more about working smarter rather than harder. Why is that? Because you, in this race, are working with something different. You're working with godly wisdom. That is finding true power and endurance by looking to Jesus for hope and help. Living by faith is not trying to be a good person. No matter how hard you try to be good on your own, you won't be. So believers, I'm going to end with this. For everyone that believes, y'all need Jesus. I'm just going to say it like that, okay? We all do. Only by him are we accepted as good enough for God. But non-believers, for those who don't believe, I believe something, and I believe it's true, that you're missing out on something miraculous, something marvelous, and something so special. A relationship with Jesus can be very challenging. It can be super difficult, but so worth it. To me, it's the only way to live a life of meaning and a life of purpose.
to be free of guilt, to have hope, to have joy, to have peace, to have love, all of those things. All of those things add up to having Christ. If you have Christ, you can receive those things by having a personal relationship with him. So I challenge you, place your faith in him and accept him as your personal Lord and Savior if you haven't. This directly uh, relates to what we're about to do. Uh, We're about to go through a time of communion together. And so this this time uh, actually represents um, our covenant and our relationship with God by our time to remember what Jesus did for us. He became our high priest by being a mediator for us to God the Father, in which he shed his blood for us. So just think about that. Just think about that for the next few seconds. And I'm going to invite up our ushers to um, pass out the communion.